Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up this hour... These kinds of predatory tactics, these kinds of bait-and-switch tactics need to stop. Unlike D.C. and Maryland, Virginia permits a practice that carries interest rates as high as 300 percent. We'll get the lowdown on predatory car title lending. But first, check out the real estate listing for 1452 Euclid Street Northwest, and you'll find it's pretty typical for a row house in one of D.C.'s hottest neighborhoods. The ad calls the four-bedroom home a stunning renovation with granite countertops and stainless appliances. The selling price? Just under a million dollars. The thing about 1452 Euclid is, until recently, it was public housing. D.C. owned it and rented it out to some of its poorest residents. The district once had hundreds of houses like this one scattered across the city and is now in the process of renovating and selling the last two dozen. WAMU's Martin Ostermule has been reporting on this story and joins me now to discuss why, with an affordable housing crunch going on, the city is selling off public housing. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, the city once owned more than 300 houses like this one on Euclid Street. So what's the backstory here? So back in the 50s and 60s, the housing agencies across the country decided that putting people in these massive public housing facilities like the ones that we see in D.C. wasn't a particularly good idea. So they decided, you know what, we're going to buy up some single-family homes. We're going to house families in these single-family homes in middle-class neighborhoods where they can lead completely normal lives and hopefully escape the cycle of poverty. Now, when D.C. started doing this, it coincided with the 1968 riots that devastated many neighborhoods in the city. So the city at the time decided, we're going to buy up these homes. It's going to be a means to get people back into these neighborhoods after the riots had forced people out of them. So that's how... At the height of it, the city owned over 320 of these houses, which were then known as scattered sites, but they were essentially just single-family homes in neighborhoods. Well, the district started selling off these scattered sites, as they were called, back in the 1990s. Is it because the program wasn't working out? Was it a financial thing? It ended up being very expensive for them to actually maintain and kind of just keep count of all these different houses. Instead of having everybody or a chunk of people in one big building, they had people all over the city. So around the mid-90s, when the city's finances tanked and the federal control board took over, they decided that, listen, if we're going to start cutting expenses, one way to do it is take these houses and start selling them off. I spoke to Carrie Smizer. She's from the D.C. Housing Authority. She's the deputy director for development. And she explained why scattered sites were not an affordable option for the city at the time. For years, Congress has underfunded the public housing program, which makes it difficult to maintain public housing developments and multifamily buildings, let alone single-family homes that are scattered throughout the, the city. So what she told me also is that back in the day, the housing authority was taking in, of every dollar it had, it got 99 cents from the federal government, and now they're down to 85 cents. So there's been a lot less money in the pot for affordable housing and for for public housing. Now, Martin, we're seeing a major shortage of affordable housing in D.C. right now. And these houses are being sold in neighborhoods where many longtime residents are being priced out. What do housing advocates have to say about what's going on? Well, housing advocates are split. Some people say, listen, if they're going to use the money for other affordable housing programs and other public housing, well, then we understand it. But there's some advocates who are annoyed. I spoke to Parisa Nuruzi. She's the executive director of Empower D.C., an organization that advocates on behalf of low-income residents. Here we have the agency that's in charge of housing people in need actually acting as a house flipper and a developer and promoting gentrification in the sense of putting housing on on the market that's at the top possible 
cost, you know, a million dollars, not even so-called workforce housing, not even, you know, a housing for somebody of moderate income, much less low income. So some advocates say that the city should be selling those houses to low-income families as they did in the past. Now, Carrie Smyzer of the D.C. Housing Authority said that they think that their approach is actually better. We don't want to be in the position where we put a lower moderate income family into a unit where they can't afford to pay the taxes and insurance. So we don't want to set anyone up for failure here. It seems like, in a way, this this scattered sites idea was ahead of its time. Um, Nowadays, the city is actually planning to demolish several of its big public housing complex to make way for mixed income developments. Why do you think it, it didn't work? Well, I was reading up some of the academic literature on this, and it was ahead of its time. I mean, they really understood that putting a bunch of low-income people in one place at one time doesn't necessarily resolve the problems that they have to begin with. So it was ahead of its time, but again, it suffered from the fact that a lot of these agencies weren't managing the properties well. WAMU's Martin Ostermule, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. You can find more of Martin's reporting and a list of all D.C.'s scattered public housing on our website, metroconnection.org. Wander down Pennsylvania Avenue, and when you reach the block straddling 13th and 14th Streets Northwest, as I did not too long ago, you'll see the John A. Wilson Building. Right here we are in front of the Wilson Building. Inside the grand marble and granite edifice, you'll find the District of Columbia's municipal offices, as well as the chambers of the mayor and council. But outside the building, you'll find the sign. The D.C. Residence Federal Tax Dollars Paid Sign. The digital display scrolls through a variety of messages and informational tidbits, including, yes, the number of federal tax dollars district residents have paid so far this year. And the day I visited, waiting for the screen to change so I can see how many federal tax dollars the D.C. residents paid, that number was impressive. Three billion five hundred nineteen million five hundred thirty-nine thousand five hundred sixty-two dollars And these $3 billion-plus of taxation without representation are just one reminder, as at-large D.C. Council member David Grosso puts it. About how we're really treated as a second-class jurisdiction in this country. Reminder of the fact that we don't have full home rule here in D.C. Another reminder, he says, and one he's been fighting lately to change, is about money. But it's also about time. It's the district's fiscal year. Now, you might not think shifting the city's budgeting calendar would be a rallying cry for independence, but for Grasso, the fiscal year has both symbolic and practical implications. You see, for most states and cities, the fiscal year runs July through June, coinciding with the school year. But because of D.C.'s ties to the federal government, we operate on the Fed's fiscal year, October through September, meaning for us, the new fiscal year just began. And that, says Councilmember Grasso, who chairs the Council's Committee on Education, is a problem. Because school starts in August. So people in the system, the parents, the teachers, the school administrators, don't really know what their budget is. It's not clear because it's such a jumbled mess on when we have to do everything. Which is why, at the end of September, Grasso's D.C. Fiscal Year Designation Amendment Act of 2015 was referred to the Committee of the Whole. This legislation would align D.C.'s fiscal year with the school year, so July through June. 
And that change would delight D.C.'s deputy mayor for education, Jenny Niles. We need to do the best for our children. And the last thing we need is crazy timelines to be the hurdle. As for the current crazy timeline, she says. It doesn't sync up to the way we need to do planning for our kids. And we need to do that planning in the spring before the school year and certainly in the summer. But that can be tough when you don't know how much money is coming in till a month or so after the new school year starts. We have grants, local grants, that aren't available till October 4th. Take, for instance, there's going to be a new early literacy grant that's available this coming year. The Office of the State Superintendent of Education can't put out the opportunity for it until after October, which means that it doesn't align with getting off to the school year. Because schools that receive that grant? They will maybe be able to start in January. Another consequence of the October through September schedule, the district must request in advance to the school system ahead of each fiscal year. While we have figured out how to pay schools in a way that doesn't prevent them from spending money before October 1st, which is important because we have lots of expenses in schools before October 1st, it would be infinitely simpler to have the fiscal year match the school year so that we're not trying to do all of these wacky workarounds. But ask the district's chief financial officer, Jeffrey DeWitt, how infinitely simple it would be to change D.C.'s fiscal year. It will be very complicated. And just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should, as my mother told me years ago. (laughs) Especially since it'll cost the district a pretty penny, he says. Could you possibly put a price tag on how much the change would cost us? It would cost us tens of millions of dollars. For one thing, D.C. would have to replace every piece of financial software it uses. It'd have to change how it assesses property, when its taxes are due. Then we have the issue of contracts. All the contracts that go in the fiscal year will have to be modified and amended and maybe renegotiated. And bonds. The $9.5 billion in debt that we have for the bonds that we sold to the market are based on that fiscal year. So those documents would have to be redone. In some cases, we may have to refinance the debt in order to redo those bonds. But even if Jeffrey DeWitt has reservations about D.C. changing its fiscal year, the former Arizonan says he understands how the change could help D.C. show its independence. I get the long battle that the district has had, and, and I'm a citizen of the district now, too. And I, whenever I left Arizona, I had a Senate and a representative that were whenever I voted. I don't have that now. So I totally respect and get it. Someone else who totally respects and gets it, both personally and professionally, is Eleanor Holmes Norton, now in her 13th term as the non-voting congresswoman for the District of Columbia. We should be on the same fiscal year as every other state and jurisdiction, at least when it comes to their own local matters, of which there is nothing more important than the opening of school they have chosen the fiscal year that suits them best. And Washington, D.C. would get to choose the fiscal year that suits it best under the Budget Autonomy Act. In a 2013 referendum, 83 percent of D.C. voters approved the legislation, which would give the district more control over the local budget while giving Congress less. The Budget Autonomy Act is tied up in legal issues right now, but Norton believes it's the key to D.C. declaring its fiscal year independence, more so even than the Fiscal Year Designation Amendment Act proposed by her former chief counsel, David Grasso. I can understand why the council member, my good friend Mr. Grasso, who has jurisdiction over the schools, wants to get us aligned with the fiscal year that benefits the schools. I think he would agree, indeed he's worked here in the Congress with me, that the preferable alternative would be to get budget autonomy and then let the district decide when it wants its fiscal year to begin and end. 
Back outside the Wilson Building, Councilmember Grasso acknowledges that until the legal uncertainties of the Budget Autonomy Act are resolved, changing D.C.'s fiscal year might not be in the cards in the near future, especially given those costs CFO Jeffrey DeWitt is so worried about. He's told me it'll cost millions of dollars, but the fact is that we have a $1.8 billion surplus in D.C. If that is a priority for us, then I think it's something we should do. But until we do, Grasso is determined to keep the conversation going both for the sake of the district. It's a statement to the federal government every time we talk about this, every time we engage in this conversation, that we're not treated equally, we're not treated fairly. And for the sake of the district's students, teachers, and administrators. I have you know, real compassion and, and I'm really worried about them, so I, I'm always trying to do what I can to make it better for the schools. Maybe we won't be able to do it overnight, but we will be ready when the time has come. Time for a break, but when we get back, why violent crime keeps going down in Prince George's County, while homicides in cities such as D.C. and Baltimore are going up. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Coming up in just a bit, combating violent crime in Washington, D.C. and Prince George's County, Maryland. We'll look at potential solutions to rising homicide rates. First, though, we'll head to Virginia, where back in 2008, lawmakers cracked down on payday lending. They capped interest rates at 36 percent, down from nearly 400. But that didn't stop high-interest loans. Since the law went into effect, the Commonwealth has seen a dramatic rise in the number of car title lenders. These companies offer easy money with the title to your vehicle as collateral. According to Virginia's attorney general, these loans resulted in nearly 20,000 cars being repossessed last year. Virginia reporter Michael Pope explains what these loans are and why some critics say they're predatory. For many people in need of quick cash, this is the sound of money. Title Max got your money, your money, your money, your real money. <laughs> Title Max can turn your title into real money. For those in need of money for rent or crushing medical bills, it seems like a deal that's almost too good to be true. For many, the reality sinks in only when they realize they're paying about 200% interest. That's what happened to Waverly. Hi, Michael Pope. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. He asked us not to use his last name because of the stigma attached to title loans. I met him in the parking lot of a Title Max in Richmond. They make it sound so easy to get a loan and, you know, to come in and um, not having to go through the hoops, I guess, so to speak, to get like a traditional loan. So, you know, I decided to stop by one day to see when I, when I ain't have any other options. So he handed over the title to his 2000 Toyota Avalon and took a loan for $600. You're just trying to rob Peter to pay Paul, so to speak, when you're underwater. And um, you don't have a lifeboat, so to speak. So that was my lifeboat just to keep me afloat for a while. He returned to this Title Max again and again to make payments on that $600 loan. And then one day... I was offered additional money on that loan being that I had was in good standing or something. Um, but it wasn't explained that it was like a consumer finance loan, which later I found out that was what I was in. 
before I can ask him to explain we're interrupted. Yeah, you guys go. Hi there. Michael Pope, WAMU Radio. How you doing? What's going on here? I'm uh, interviewing him about a story that I'm working on involving title loans. Okay. Well, you're going to have to do it somewhere else. You can't do it here. Mm -hmm. What's your name? Don't worry. I'm not giving you my name, but you need to um, leave the premises. Okay. All right. Thanks. You've probably guessed at this point that the folks at Title Max don't want us there. A spokesman for the company declined to be interviewed for this story, and lobbyists representing the industry, they didn't respond to numerous calls seeking comment. After being kicked out of the Title Max parking lot, Waverly and I drive to an adjacent strip mall. That's where Waverly explained that his second loan was for much more money, $2,600. But it wasn't a car title loan at all. It was a consumer finance loan that used the title of his car as collateral. And because it technically wasn't a car title loan, it faced none of the restrictions on how long the payments could go on for or what the interest rate could be. Do you feel like they were honest with you? No, I don't feel like they were honest, man. I felt like I was um, manipulated. And so that's why I was very upset about it and, and figuring out I couldn't get out of it. What happened to Waverly shows the latest trend in car title lending as companies in Virginia increasingly move into the shadowy world of consumer finance loans. In the past year, the number of these loans has tripled, and it now represents about a third of the money being loaned in the industry. But state regulators are not keeping track of how many cars they're repossessing, for example, nor do they track how many people fail to make monthly payments or how much money is recovered in judgments against borrowers. Delegate Scott Servell is a Fairfax County Democrat whose district has become one of the region's hotspots for these businesses. So some people come out of these shops with products that are not car title loans, that have even worse interest rates, that have longer payment terms, that are even harder to get out of. And this kind of, these kinds of predatory tactics, these kinds of bait and switch tactics need to stop. And I hope to, to pass legislation next year to deal with that. But Servell will be facing opposition. Dick Saslaw, also of Fairfax County, is the Democratic leader in the Senate. Campaign finance records show he's taken about $37,000 from Title Max in the last decade, and he's one of the industry's chief supporters in Richmond. It's not predatory, and do you want to send these people back paying 8 to 10,000 uh, percent APR? Saslaw says if people like Waverly didn't have access to Title Max, they'd find other ways to make ends meet even if that means paying an even higher annual percentage rate. Well, they borrowed on the street. Borrow $100 on Monday, pay back $200 on Friday, 10,000% APR. That's where they were borrowing money. And if they didn't pay it back, they got the hell beat out of them. And they still had to pay it back. Diane Standard at the Center for Responsible Lending says she's seen no evidence of that. But she has seen plenty of evidence that car title loans are bad news. The typical car title loan is refinanced eight times. This typically means that the loan was not affordable to the borrower. And in fact, repeat reborrowing is the core of the car title business model. Standard and other critics say it's a business model that results in easy money for the lender, but hard times for the borrower. 25% of these loans are now seriously in default. That's Jay Spear at the Virginia Poverty Law Center. That tells you that these, are, these loans are not affordable and that you, if, if you're thinking about getting a loan like this, the, the likelihood that you're going to default is very high and the likelihood that you're going to have your car repossessed is, is very high. In Waverly's case, he borrowed a total of $2,600, but he ended up paying $5,500. Fortunately, he had help paying off that debt. He got into a car accident and the insurance company offered him enough money to pay off the loan. 
Although the car is damaged, it's still drivable. This was my mother's vehicle before she passed away. I inherited, so I was already upset about that. And so I just look at a blessing from her. She, she probably was just trying to get me out of the loan. That's how I look at it, really. Others aren't so lucky. And now critics of the industry are pushing state and federal regulators to crack down on what they say is nothing more than loan sharking. Others say the businesses are operating within existing law, and people like Waverly know what they're getting into. I'm Michael Pope. You can hear more of Michael's reporting on the rapid growth of car title lending in Virginia in an investigative series coming up all next week during Morning Edition here on WAMU. Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, all these cities are experiencing a spike in homicides this year. In Washington, the number of killings is up 50 percent compared with 2014. Explanations have been elusive, as have solutions. Coming up, we'll hear about an innovative program one D.C. lawmaker wants to import from California. But first, we'll look at an effort that seems to be working closer to home. Maryland reporter Matt Bush brings us this story from Prince George's County, where the homicide rate has been going down for the past four years. Riverdale Heights is just off the BW Parkway inside the Beltway. Marty Newman has lived there for 30 years. Well, I walk the community at least twice a day from top to bottom, mostly for exercise, but also because I love to talk to people. She's the head of the community association that includes Riverdale Heights and neighboring Riverdale Hills and Crestwood. More than four years ago, I wouldn't have felt safe to walk the community alone, and I feel perfectly safe to do that now. Newman says back in the bad days, gang graffiti was everywhere, and students were jumped frequently as they walked home from the nearby middle school. Families wouldn't take their kids to the neighborhood playground because it was littered with drug paraphernalia. Then this happened seven years ago. We had um, two, I'm told they were former gang members on Lower Quintana Street who were shot and killed. That really opened up everybody's eyes to these are not just wayward children. You know, we have a, a real issue. Similar scenarios were playing out in other neighborhoods across Maryland's second most populous county. But then things began changing. Police found their answers by digging through data. Hank Stowinski is the deputy chief of Prince George's County Police and the unofficial numbers guy of the department. What we pay particular attention to are the crimes that could feed into homicides. So those are your armed robberies, your citizen robberies. Stowinski starts every day with a morning meeting that includes a spreadsheet of crimes reported in the last 24 hours. When rising numbers of armed robberies show up in that spreadsheet and they're concentrated in one area, that is especially alarming. Armed robberies tend to be the biggest feeders of homicides. In that interaction, which is a very tense interaction between the criminal and the victim, let's say the victim doesn't do what the criminal anticipates. And in a fraction of a second, that suspect now decides, well, I'm just going to shoot this person. So the key to stopping homicides, track armed robberies and stop them. And that's where we've had I believe, some of our success. Stowinski says new numbers then started to emerge. For the first 10 years of the 2000s, we had on average 126 homicides a year. Um, So starting in 2012, we had 64. 2013, we had 56. 2014, we had 54. To put those numbers in perspective, the county averaged fewer murders than D.C. during the last decade, even though Prince George's County has a higher population. But county homicides dwarfed its suburban neighbors like Montgomery and Anne Arundel counties. Prince George's County 
is an urban environment without a city core. And if you look at our border with the District of Columbia, the neighborhoods a mile into the district and a mile into the county along that corridor really don't substantially differ from one another. Keeping the murder rate down in future years may have less to do with police work and more to do with addressing societal ills. Prince George's County Executive Rashern Baker pays attention to many factors, but two in particular. Baker says high school dropout rates feed into homicides. There are very few jobs for people who don't have a high school diploma. Uh, These were young people that had time on their hands. Um, and they could get into incidents where it would escalate into you know, either a petty crime or a homicide. Replacing the aging Prince George's Hospital Center with a new facility in Largo should also help drive down crime, according to Baker. Health care and access to health care has a big part in why people were absent from school, why kids didn't do well in school, and why crimes were committed. The mental health or physical health went into the whole attitude of people that would put themselves in a situation that could lead to being arrested. Fixing those problems will take longer, but Baker started the Transforming Neighborhoods Initiative three years ago to help. Under it, six areas of the county see greater government aid, not just police, but social workers, school psychologists, health officers, and public works. One of the first things the program took on was a glut of vacant homes, a leftover from the national foreclosure crisis, which hit Prince George's County especially hard. Lavinia Baxter officially worked in economic development for the county, but that's not what she was doing when she was assigned to the Kentland Palmer Park area under transforming neighborhoods. Oh man, just picking up trash and throwing out old junk that was sitting on the curb. We got a dumpster out there. We cut grass. We raked leaves. We did it all. Many of those homes were torn down while others were renovated so they could be sold. The hope is it will eliminate yet another factor that feeds crime. Riverdale Heights is in one of the transforming neighborhood areas, and Marty Newman says the program has lived up to its name thus far. My goodness gracious. Well, I can tell you it has greatly improved as far as I'm concerned, and I hear that from our community members a lot. As we chatted, one of her neighbors was taking down a for sale sign from his front yard. A day after putting his house on the market, he'd received three offers for it and accepted one for $15,000 above his asking price. And that, Newman says, was unthinkable just a short time ago. I'm Matt Bush. Another jurisdiction getting attention for its success fighting violent crime is all the way on the other side of the country. This is Richmond, California. Richmond, California, which Al Jazeera America featured on a segment under the headline, A City That Pays Criminals to Behave. Back in 2007, this small Bay Area city had the ninth highest homicide rate in the nation. There wasn't a whole lot of trust between residents and cops, though there was a well-documented legacy of police brutality. So the city implemented a new strategy. Each year, it would identify the 200 residents most likely to get shot or to shoot someone else. It would offer these individuals mentoring and, controversially, a stipend of up to $1,000 a month. By 2013, the city was seeing the fewest number of homicides in more than three decades. Now, the program has caught the eye of a lawmaker in Washington, D.C. Kenyon McDuffie chairs the District Council's Judiciary Committee. He spoke with Patrick Madden about why he's introduced a bill to create a Richmond-style effort here in the nation's capital. They focus on identifying some of the highest-risk individuals who are likely to be engaged in violence. And it incentivizes their participation in a program that ultimately is designed to put them on a pathway to success. 
uh, and helping to, to put in place a life plan for these individuals. And uh, what we know is that much of our violence is retaliatory. And if we can reach those individuals who are the most likely to commit crimes or be victims of crimes, uh, then we have the ability to potentially quell violence before it happens, to prevent it and intervene on the front end rather than just simply respond after a homicide or some other gun violence has occurred. What would you say to critics who say, you know, council member, you're turning over, you know, tax dollars to folks that may have a criminal record, who, who may be prone to violence, you know, how do you defend spending public dollars that way? Well, what's clear is that we cannot arrest our way out of this crime problem. Uh, and the cost with incentivizing it through this program, I think, pales in comparison to the cost associated with policing those neighborhoods where they live, with the cost of the criminal justice system when we arrest them, prosecute them, and convict them. And ultimately, the vast majority of people who we're fortunate to successfully convict uh, and send away to a period of incarceration, they're coming right back home uh, when they get released. And so we want to really try to cut at the heart of the problem and try to focus more on prevention. And another part of this bill is is really going after the data. You, you want stop-and-frisk data, other sort of records from the police department, as well as, you know, when violent acts are committed. Why is that so important? So uh, much of the data that we're talking about, or some of it at least, is already being collected. Uh, Stop-and-frisk has been a really controversial issue. You've seen it uh, being talked about across the country uh, in places like Baltimore, Ferguson, in particular New York. Uh, And so we want to be able to collect the data around stops and frisk uh, and other data as well to give MPD, to give the Deputy Mayor for Public Safety and Justice, the ability to evaluate and better understand where the gaps are in resource allocation. Ultimately, we want to uh, have increased transparency around what's happening and how residents and visitors to the District of Columbia are being policed by law enforcement. And we think that this effort uh, is going to help to better inform that. Do you think that the policies the mayor and the chief have have introduced, do you think that's going too far in the direction of just putting more, you know, tougher laws on the books? Well, I think it needs to be balanced. I think that what we've seen in the past with the tough on crime laws, the results have been uh, catastrophic. I think this is an approach that is smart on crime. I think this is an approach where you're using the assets that exist in the communities and partnering with organizations and government agencies to address those long-standing systemic issues of violence in these neighborhoods. Again, uh, we're talking about systemic violence, and you really have to be smart and innovative with your approach in order to have the lasting changes that we want here in the District of Columbia. And I think this is one step in the right direction. That was D.C. Councilmember Kenyon McDuffie speaking with WAMU's Patrick Madden. In a minute, ridership on Metro is declining. And some commuters say after a year of crowded platforms and rush hour meltdowns, they're quitting public transit. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. There's no two ways about it. Our region's transit system is having a rough year. The latest bad news from Metro? For the next six months, at least, we'll be seeing slowdowns and delays on the orange, silver, and blue lines after a fire near the stadium armory station. 
A larger problem for Metro has to do with ridership. It's declining, even as our region's population continues to grow. Transportation reporter Martin DeCaro brings us this story on whether some of that decline is because commuters are breaking up with public transportation. Eight o'clock on a Monday morning, a couple of blocks from the Red Line Station in Noma, northeast D.C. A man walking under the weight of a stuffed backpack gets to the corner of 2nd and L. Decision time. I'm going to walk. Until recently, Benjamin Rocky Harris would have turned right up 2nd Street to go to the metro station, but nowadays the 33-year-old IT professional keeps heading west on L on foot. If it worked perfectly, it'd be a 20-minute ride to work, but I'd rather walk 45 than deal with the chaos, honestly. The chaos was metro. Metro means that I have no reliability of getting to work on time. I'm going to pay a rush hour fee for probably a six or eight minute wait for a red line train and then possibly not even be able to get on the first train because they're all six car trains and they'll be full. So he quit and now he's one of an unknown number of commuters choosing different ways to get to work after months of rush hour meltdowns on the rails. I've received dozens of emails and tweets from riders who've given up. Rocky Harris chooses to walk. Matthew Benjamin opts for his bike because the orange line kept letting him down. I showed up to work yeah, like 45 minutes late one time. That was kind of actually the final straw. The 36-year-old federal worker lives in Falls Church. He bikes all the way into his office near Union Station. My record is 54 minutes. He'd rather pedal for an hour than squeeze onto a packed train for an hour or more. It was really the inconsistent times that the trains were running. You know, that you couldn't count on the same train to be there the same time each day in the morning. You know, and that made my commuting time vary back and forth, you know, by 30, 45 minutes at a time. And that just wasn't acceptable. So he quit Metro 2 at a time when Metro can't afford to lose any riders. The Transit Authority is facing years of projected budget deficits because of a bad combination, rising costs and stagnant revenues. But public confidence in the system is crumbling. I'd rather take the subway, but I can't rely upon it. Becky Ogle isn't concerned only about train malfunctions and track problems. Because she's in a wheelchair, the disability rights advocate has to rely on Metro's elevators, too. I'm supposed to be at work at the same time my colleagues are, able-bodied colleagues. But if I get to the, my destination and the elevator's not working, then I usually it takes about an hour to recoup because I'll have to go to another destination with an elevator working and then either backtrack on my own through my own rolling or have Metro come pick me up, which could take forever. And there's another reason she's quit Metro, safety. I would probably be dead if I was on that Metro when the fire happened. Because, the smoke incident. Yeah, the smoke, because I know that I'd be the last to be evacuated. The smoke incident happened January 12th in the Yellow Line Tunnel south of LaFont Plaza Station. Carol Glover of Alexandria died and more than 80 passengers were sickened when smoke from an electrical malfunction filled the train. Metro's ridership decline began with the Great Recession. Total weekday trips are down 6% since 2008, despite increasing slightly last year. The recession, the rise of teleworking, the popularity of alternatives like Uber and bike share, all factors Metro leaders are quick to point to. But what about riders giving up because of bad service? We asked Metro's interim general manager, Jack Requa, that question. There has been a decline in ridership. Uh, we're certainly trying to determine, you know, the reasons for that and anything that we can do to uh, offset that. Preliminary figures show August ridership was down 7% compared to the same month last year, a significant loss. What portion, or people like the ones I spoke to, is unclear. 
I don't know that we can uh, uh, determine exact percentages and such, but we do know that uh, unreliability does have an impact to our customers, and that's why we're going to try to make this as reliable as possible within the limits that we have. Riders are angry with more than bad service. Some say Metro seems tone-deaf to their daily aggravations, unwilling to just come out and say, yes, we're doing a bad job. And who's holding Metro accountable, they ask. Well, we asked former Metro board member and now D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, whose city provides the transit system hundreds of millions in tax revenue annually, whether she believes current service is acceptable. And this is all she would say. We know that Metro needs drastic help. Without that help, the entire region could suffer in more ways than one. Traffic congestion, the economy, air pollution. Alex Pozorski is with the Coalition for Smarter Growth, a pro-transit group. He says we can't afford to have commuters quit Metro for their cars. That's not a viable solution. Um, it may be for an isolated handful of folks here and there, but it's not a viable solution en masse. Driving is working out for Brian Keith, a federal employee who lives in Winchester. I got here in an hour and 30 minutes, absolutely no hiccups, car parked at my desk with breakfast at 6.30. Instead of driving to the Orange Line station in Vienna and taking Metro the rest of the way, he drives all 100 miles into the district, preferring to take his chances with I-66 than the train. Like other former Metro riders I spoke to, Keith does not feel great about quitting Metro. I have actually very fond memories of Metro. I mean, my first experiences in D.C. were my dad taking me to RFK to Redskins games as a kid. We took Metro every time, and we never had a problem. We never had issues with it breaking down or not knowing what was going on. And I think back, you know, that's, what, 20 years ago now to what it is today? I mean, you're lucky if something doesn't happen on your commute now. When asked what it would take to go back to Metro, folks give a simple answer. Just run the trains on time. I'm Martin DeCaro. It's not too late to chime in on your own Metro riding experience. Have you thought about calling it quits with public transportation in D.C.? Or are you staying true, for better, for worse, in transit sickness and in transit health? Send us an email. Our address is metro at wamu.org. One of the busiest metro stations during the morning rush is Farragut West. And our next story brings us to a building right outside that station on the corner of 18th and I Streets Northwest. We'll hear more in our latest installment of Clips. Our ongoing exploration of D.C.'s barbershops in partnership with Elevation D.C., a weekly online magazine about what's next for the city. Ride up the metro escalator at 18th and I, and you'll come upon a three-building complex whose 1.1 million square feet occupy nearly the entire block. And once you venture inside International Square, as it's called, you'll find a soaring, light-filled atrium with a food court, tons of offices, and the buzzing, humming, home away from home... Let me see. Come over here. ...of this guy. They're not going to hurt. Sit down there. Jose Rodriguez owns Jose's Barbershop. And right now, good, huh? the Puerto Rican native is wearing an old-school chrome device on the back of his hand and delivering an intense massage to my head. It, this stuff is good for the blood circulation on the head. Oh, that feels nice. Yeah. <laughs> At many barbershops back in the day, this kind of massage to the scalp, neck, and shoulders was par for the course after your usual shave and a haircut. Oh, I got guys who come over here once a day. They think I found the, the Fantaro youth. <laughs> and while we're talking old school authenticity, let me see. 
Another classic technique Jose Rodriguez is keeping alive? I got some razors like this, okay? The traditional straight razor shave. And uh, the reason about what you cut hair with a razor is because it, I took a course one time that I they got that microscope looking at the hair. You see the hair when you cut it with the scissors? It's like a cutting wood with the chop. By cutting it with the razor, all the hairs lay down flat to each other. The Fairfax County resident says he's spent so many years cutting with straight razors, he can practically do it with his eyes closed. Just by the feel of it, okay? I can do the haircut almost from the beginning to it. And really, it's no surprise. After all, he's been a barber for more than half a century and has owned his own shop since the early 2000s. But he never expected any of it back in March of 1957, when, at age 19, he left his rural town in Puerto Rico to fly to the capital of the United States. I got in Washington about midnight. The, the old days, we had flight to New York and back here. He was supposed to get a ride to 18th Street and Columbia Road, where his uncle lived, but his ride never showed. I got three dollars in my pocket, and I give it to the taxi driver to take me to 18th and Columbia Road. Penniless and jobless, the next day, Jose hit the ground running. Or knocking. I started knocking doors in restaurants, figured that's the best way to get a, uh, a job. Making his way down Connecticut Avenue, he wound up at The Colony, a fancy French restaurant just north of the Mayflower Hotel. I didn't know then nothing about French food, but I found out I was knocking in the right place. Indeed he was, because here's the thing, Jose had zero restaurant experience, which is why he offered The Colony's manager a proposal. You don't have to pay me, you just put me to work, as long as you give me lunch and dinner... And if you think I'm worth something, you pay me later. Lucky for Jose, he was hired on the spot. Uh, Were you a busboy? A busboy. Well, yeah, yeah, you know. But I was very far. Now, one thing we haven't mentioned, as a teenager in Puerto Rico, Jose actually dabbled in barbering. But he couldn't just start cutting hair in the U.S. without a license. So after a few months in his new city, he got his barber's license. He met this older Italian barber who soon hired him to work at his shop here in the Farragut neighborhood. His name was Vito. He, he was the one who helped me out. Later on, he died. But I worked with him together for 42 years. He let me have everything I could because he was a, that kind of guy. In the early 2000s, Jose struck out on his own. He opened up this space inside International Square and says business has been booming ever since. He even has clients who call him from overseas. Who are your clients? Do they come from all over the place? All over the place. I got phone calls even from overseas all the time because the World Bank and the uh, monetary fund, IMF, this city is full of international businesses. And they got my telephone. They call me sometimes when they come to big meetings in Washington. Jose, I got your phone. It's still here. Can you cut my hair? And it's his clients who keep Jose going after all these years. You learn so much from them. Today we talk about everything. And we became just like a family. While some days Jose's barbershop is hopping, some days, like today, it's a bit quieter. You know, I don't make that much money like I used to do in the old days. But it's still, I'm happy about it. I can go home anytime I want to, I come anytime I want to. Jose is thinking about paring down his schedule, maybe taking Wednesdays off. And that's what it's good because, you know, one day I can play golf, I can go fishing. But he isn't about to pack up his razors and massagers for good. You're not going to retire anytime soon? No. I keep going because I like it so much. I could be doing something now, but I'd rather do this because it's, it's part of my life. And Jose Rodriguez is grateful for that life every day. He's come a long way from that fresh-faced 19-year-old kid. 
and has 50-plus years of freshly shaved faces and well-coiffed, well-massaged heads to prove it. You've heard from Jose. Now see him in action. Old school scalp massager and all. We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. And as we continue our series on D.C.'s barbershops, we want to hear from you. At last count, Washington boasted more than 100 licensed shops. So if you have a favorite, let us know. Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. Howard University has long distinguished itself as one of the top historically black colleges in the country. The institution in Northwest D.C. stands out in many ways, but one in particular might be surprising. It's the only HBCU with a graduate program in film. As such, black filmmakers flock to Howard from the world over to learn from masters like Haile Garima. Garima is a celebrated Ethiopian writer and director who's taught at the university for 40 years. Lauren Ober caught up with him to talk about black filmmaking, Hollywood, and the definition of good. If you're afraid of hard work and intellectual rigor, then Haile Garima's scriptwriting class at Howard probably isn't for you. During a recent class, he asks graduate student Ladon Manuel to read plot points from the story she's working on. Um, Erica is sentenced. Um, disgruntled Erica greets the nurse eight by name as she enters the asylum. Um, the nurse expresses how disappointed she is to see Erica return. Uh-uh. Don't rush it. Read them as items. One, there is plot points here, but they're not tightened. They're not scrutinized. In fact, some of them are still where they were the first time you had them. Garima tells his student to start her read over again. So Manuel takes another crack at it. Start over. Uh-huh. <laughs> Erica is sentenced. Disgruntled. Erica agrees to nurse eight. She's sentenced, and yet we don't know the emotional impact on her. It's not enough. I think a dramatist should also always go to the gut and get the emotional gut of that scene. So when you do your plot lines, just get the gut. It might seem a little harsh, Garima interrupting his student again and again to tell her all the ways in which her work is not actually working. But over the years, his method of instruction and criticism has helped mint filmmakers with a distinct point of view. Garima was born in Ethiopia during Emperor Haile Selassie's reign and came to UCLA in the late 60s to study theater. But it didn't suit him. The theater is where you actually confront white supremacy. He found that the classes were taught from a decidedly white Eurocentric perspective. Here I am uh, trying to find my own self, my own identity, my own stories, and everything in there is Hamlet and Shakespeare and Ibsen and Chekhov. And so I was very frustrated in the theater department, and they were about to expel me because I was not also behaving well because of this frustration. And so I found myself in the film department and I saw films made by students and I said, whoa, maybe I should try this. But Garima didn't just try filmmaking. While he was a student, Garima helped spearhead an entire movement that eschewed conventional Hollywood cinema in favor of a more international view of the craft. It was called the L.A. Rebellion. We all felt that we had nothing in common with this Eurocentric 
paradigm of representation or theater or movies. And so we were opting to looking at Latin American films, African films, Iranian films, trying to find our own identity and empower the very stories we set out to want to tell. Immediately after UCLA, Garima took a job at Howard. There was something about teaching students of color to push against the Hollywood standard that appealed to him. I wanted to influence black kids to question. I said, well, work in Hollywood if you think you can go. And on the side, do your grandmother's story. Because Hollywood will not be interested in your grandmother's story unless she's driving Miss Daisy. While Garima evolved into a respected academic, he never stopped making movies of his own. His work has been shown at premier film festivals all over the world, including Berlin and Venice. He is best known for his award-winning 1993 film, Sankofa, a historical drama about the Atlantic slave trade. Those stolen Africans step out of the ocean from the wombs of the ships and claim your story. Not only is Garima making influential work, but many of his former students are as well. One of them is Bradford Young. He served as the cinematographer for last year's Oscar contender, Selma. Young is currently shooting a film in Quebec. I have my own barometer as an artist who feels free in some way uh, to just improve on my, on my craft. And that's really all that matters to me, you know. And so I think that's really what Hailey wanted us to do, is just to focus on what it is important to us and don't let the other rules of engagement ruin our perception of who we are and what we could be. Back in the script writing class, Grima is driving that point home. So you have any concern, my sister? Um, I guess they're being cleared up now. I don't think the plot points that I wrote are correct, but now at least see, I know how to write a plot point. see what you point. did to her? You introduced correct. <laughs> what is correct? I mean, I'm telling you guys, I'm, I'm trying to stop you from using these kinds of things because there's prohibitions that are very anti-art, anti-expressions. And that's Garima's main message to his students. There is no correct in filmmaking, or at least there shouldn't be. I'm Lauren Ober. And that's Metro Connection for this week. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past editions, subscribe to our podcast. You can find a link at metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We list all our music at metroconnection.org, where you can also find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages so we can stay in touch with you all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. 